On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving, at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. The Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Joining me as always is the one, the only, the affable Alan Niven. Good day. Good day to you, Mitch. I hope you're having a good day. And careful how you say that word, affable. Um, it could sound like something else. And, uh, you know, I hope it's not a, a dog day evening for you in Canada where it's really cold and miserable. But I hope you're doing good. Oh, we, we are definitely entering the dog days of, of the year of 2018 in this part of the world. But uh, speaking of... Canadians. I have Aldenova on the line with me. He talks about his new album 2.0, which is essentially him taking the first album that he released all those years ago with Heart to Heart and Fantasy and all that and re-recording them in a modern kind of way. So that we'll, we'll talk about that. And then on the other side, we will listen to Frank Hannon of Tesla, who has a new album called, of course, from one place to another, volume two. And he's doing, in fact, the exact opposite, I guess, of Aldenova. He is reaching back into the catalogs of Aerosmith and Deep Purple and all that, doing covers of Hush, Lord of the Thighs. And so we've got sort of a yin and yang right there. But uh, Aldenova, first and foremost, what are your thoughts? I mean, as a Canadian, you know, he's worked with Celine Dion. He's done a lot of stuff with Bon Jovi and all this. And, and we sort of see him as a revered artiste, part of the cultural community up here down in the States, or especially when you were not in the States, when you were over in whatever, New Zealand, Australia, and UK. And what was sort of the, the, the reception or the understanding of Aldenova? Well, there was definitely a period of time when you couldn't turn on the radio without hearing fantasy. And, you know, Canada's a little different. It's uh, a little bit more like England. You know, it's if you achieve something and you do well at something and, and you, you have a big hit, I think the English and the Canadians are far more likely to honor that and remember it. Whereas America's got that what have you done for me lately kind of attitude. And uh, I just like the fact that if some achieve something and they achieve their dream and they turn on a whole bunch of people for a period of time, that you can still remember to touch your cap and say, well done, mate. Yeah, we do do that. So I, I, I sit down with Aldo, and he hasn't, of course, done a lot of interviews in the last little bit, but we talk about this 2.0. And what's interesting is that, for me, this is interview 2.0 with him because I did an interview with him about a month ago and we talked about the album and his whole history and and this album came out in this year you know the, the sort of the the Mitch interview if you want that kind of progression with the, and 
we started talking about his work on the first Bon Jovi album and on the Blaze of Glory album with Bon Jovi. And we got all this great, great um, reveals and content. And I guess some secrets might have been spilled. And then I get a call and I say, and from, from management or publicist and says, you can't use that interview. There's too much Bon Jovi content and we're, we're concerned. And it's like, dang. So I said, okay, well, we'll do a second interview and we will cover uh, some other ground and we'll edit it all together. And then I thought, you know what? That's not the concept of the show. So I get Aldo on, on, by the way, I get Aldo on the phone for the second interview and I start doing this and I go, but you know what? That's not the concept of the show. It's the artist as the artist. So I said in my head, we'll just, we'll just make this second interview, not a fill in the blanks. It's a whole brand new interview. So that's, that's what we'll hear today. And of course, to my, I don't want to say, I don't want to say demise. I'm not, but, but, but to my, whatever, my regrets is that we don't get the entire Bon Jovi story. We we get a sort of a very sanitized version of it. But that said, the interview is still great. Aldo was still very gracious. The answers are still great. You'll you'll get a great kick out of listening to this, and and we'll get to that in a second. But Bon well, you know, Jovi, yeah. I, I, we've touched on this before, and you know what what my personal little perspective of this is is that if you're going to go and do an interview and if you're going to sit down then one have the manners to respect the fact that somebody's wishing to interview you and two tell us stories because that's what people who follow you or are interested in you or interested in your music want to hear um, you know, I think people can get a bit precious sometimes, and sometimes they use preciousness to hide things that they maybe don't feel that great about or a little embarrassed about. But, you know, what the hell? It's life and life only, and it's only rock and roll, and we like it. Just tell a story. Yeah, I mean, the interviews shouldn't be advertisements for your latest stuff of course out of respect we should mention your latest album and your latest tour and your latest project or your art gallery opening or whatever it is because obviously that's why we're on the phone but at the same time it it you know as much as i respect your art you should respect sort of my art and my art is to do the interview and if it's just going to be well, I'm playing, uh, you know, in New York on the fifteenth uh, of uh, December, and the new album is called "This." And thank you very much. It's it's disappointing. Now, the interview is not that. The second interview is fine. We we did get into some stories and stuff, but the first one, to me, having heard them both, having heard back, was so great. And some of that stuff, I mean, Bon Jovi enthusiasts would be like, "Oh my God, this happened." That, but all right, whatever. I respect well, maybe, the process. Maybe, maybe when you're finishing production on this, you might just throw a curveball and throw the first interview on at the very end. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? We'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see about that. But uh, but let me just get to, to Bon Jovi because since since we can't have. Uh, the Bon Jovi interview or the Bon Jovi stories from the first interview. Let me let me ask you. You of course were around at that time. Bon Jovi, Def Leppard, uh, you know, Scorpions, Metallica, all Guns N' Roses, of course, all sort of ruling the airwaves. Did did your world 
of Guns and Great White ever sort of intersect where they were on tour with you, or, or did, did John ever call you out of the blue for anything? Did you ever, you know, did you ever go for lunch? Did you uh, any Bon Jovi stories in your world? Well, actually, that is a perfect setup and lead. Um, you must be incredibly psychic and intuitive. Um, there were a couple of times where um, paths crossed. Um, when we were finishing up Izzy's solo record uh, in Copenhagen, mixing there, um, we got a number of phone calls from John. Uh, he really wanted Izzy to go out and open up for him on the upcoming Bon Jovi tour. Um, I suppose you get your credibility where you can. And Izzy was very, very reluctant. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you, he, he just looked at me and he said, Niv, I'd rather play clubs than open for Bon Jovi. Um, and I kind of understood. Um, you know, that's, again, somebody who's got tremendous achievement, uh, he's a pretty nifty actor. Um, he's had an amazing life. Um, but he's always struck me as somebody who's been reaching for the role of artist. And I view him entirely as an entertainer. And uh, that was kind of my feeling when after Doc McGee moved on, and David Geffen called me and said, you should take over for Doc McGee. Um, and after an interesting meeting with John, where he was with his an accountant and a tour manager um, as wingmen, I don't know what he was afraid of, um, I kind of left the room thinking, you know, John, you have a great career. Good luck with it. It's not quite what I'm into. Um, I'm not very good with entertainers, but I can sure mess around with somebody who's got an artistic bent. You can mess around with with rock stars. Uh, just real quick on David Geffen. Do, do you still talk to him at all or email him every so often? Because he strikes me as a guy who was definitely a genius. Because when, when Geffen took over in, those, in the late 80s and you had the White Snakes and the Guns N' Roses, and the, he, he just seemed to have this magic, magic touch. Was it just right circumstance or is he really this just has this business acumen and he just knows what he's doing he has the acumen he's a very sharp very forceful personality he is very good at setting people against each other i mean for example at geffen he had three a and r people and there wasn't one head of a and r and two people underneath him they were three supposed equals and when one was doing well the other two would be pitted against the guy who was doing well uh, out of jealousy and trying to get attention for their act so the two would be sharpening up their claws for the for the third um, and he kept this one two three triangle situation in A&R going so as whoever was doing well would always have the other two sniping after him and competing for budget and competing for t attention and competing for prominence for their acts in promotion. Um, and it was, it was clever. Um, it was it competition. It was yes, it was clever and it worked. Um, and David is an utterly ruthless person. Um, if David, if 
he became your enemy, he would do whatever he could to destroy you. Um, and if you didn't bend the knee to him, he could uh, he, he could he could be a very vicious person. Um, and he had that reputation in the town. Um, I can imagine. From my, from my point of view, David always did what I asked him to do. He never broke a promise. Uh, there was one point where he felt that I was going to be around long enough that he gave me every single telephone number that he had, um, you know, which was, you know, this penthouse, that penthouse, this city, that city, uh, this house here, that house there, this cell phone, you know, so I had about seven or eight numbers for David Geffen, none of which I ever used because my point of view was you do your job, David, and I'll do mine and we'll get along fine. And I think he respected that. And I think it's, a genuine claim that I might have been the only manager who ever forced him to renegotiate an existing contract. Um, I know at the time that this happened that um, there were attempts to renegotiate the contract for Whitesnake and for Aerosmith and David sent those managers packing and being a half-wit and having half a wit, um, I looked on from the sidelines and I said, what do I learn from this? Yeah, and what I learned was you don't go and ask David to renegotiate a contract. You have to force him to do it. Right. And I was in a situation where I had the leverage to force him. And he was very unhappy about it at the time. But I think he respected me for doing it. And it was really simple. I told him that we were not going to finish and deliver Use Your Illusions unless he renegotiated the band's contract and gave them a much better royalty. And if he didn't do that, we were just going to go on tour for the next one or two or maybe three years and have a great time and make lots of money anyway. And That's funny. Yeah, and it, it came down to the wire, but, you know, he he bent and renegotiated and the appreciation I got from Axel was to get uh, shown the back door. <laughs> was was the delay on Use Your Illusion part of this contract negotiation? I mean, that, because it, it came out a lot long. It, it took, what, three years or four years after the first one? Was uh, it? Oh, there were so many reasons for the delay. Okay. Um, and, you know, I mean, we don't, we don't have to go into a long GNR thing here, but I mean, no. you know, there, there was the Stephen factor, there was the material factor, there was the amount of material that Axel insisted on doing. There was the fact that some of it was epic and meandering, some of it just rambled. I mean, you know, there were loads and loads of reasons why that record. That weren't, yeah. So let me ask you this real quick. Uh, I'm assuming Tim Collins was the one renegotiating for Aerosmith, right? Because he must have been That's the man. Right. Who, who was in charge of Whitesnake White at that time? Howard had, Kaufman. Kaufman, okay. And uh, he he ended up doing uh, Poison, I believe. I think Howard yeah, Kaufman. And, uh, yeah, and he, he managed Hart. Um, you know, right. Howard was one of those old school kind of guys. And he had this uh, um, formula that he used with all his acts, which was... Put them out on tour, make an album, put them out on tour, let them go. You know, uh, the, the classic tour album cycle mentality. Yeah. 
And he passed away like two or three years ago, recently. I mean, within the last like 10 years, I think he passed away. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. I All right. So. so, well, then let's let us meander our way over to Aldenova. The new album is 2.0. And here is my interview 2.0. With Aldenova. We are speaking with guitarist Aldenova. He is back after, well, not, not exactly 30 years. I mean, you did have an album come out in uh, the late, what was it, uh, 90, Nova's Dream in 97. But the new album is, of course, right. 2.0. Um, talk about talk to me about this album. I mean, you're, you, you're recutting some of your greatest hits, or, or, or the first album, Fantasy, Ball and Chain, all that. Um, talk to me about that. In um, April 1st, 2017, was the 35th anniversary of my first album. And that was a landmark date for me because that's what got me to get people to notice me and what put me on the on the map, basically. So um, normally what bands usually do when they do 35th anniversaries or whatever landmark dates, they just re- repackage and remaster, I mean, re-cue and put the records out there. And I heard that uh, that's what Sony was going to do. They were just going to just remaster it and put some pictures, and they, that's what they did uh, eventually. And uh, I didn't want a date like that to go on notice. And when I turned 60 uh, on uh, in November of uh, 2016, I had already made up my mind that I just didn't want to just turn the page. I wanted to write a whole new book. So I, I asked myself, I said, um, what could I do that would make this this date really, really special? And we'll make an album that would be special for me, that would satisfy me, that would make it great, and that, that I also could do something that would satisfy my fans and also pick up a bunch of new fans and, you know, do something really uh, kick-ass. And so I got the idea that night to, to just basically start everything over from scratch and... I started everything over, and I said, well, I'm going to start with the hardest song, Fantasy. And uh, I did everything like I did on the first album. I just put a drum beat on, I put the chords on, I did a rough vocal, and then I built on the track from there. And I kept adding stuff, I subtracted stuff, I added parts, I added little things in there, um, extended solos. I wanted to make it sound more like a live feel, as if you'd see me live in concert, what the arrangement would sound like. And so when I I finally got, you know, like say, three quarters through uh, Fantasy 2.0, I realized that I had something there because it was actually moving me in, uh, uh, you know, it was doing something to me. It got me excited again. And then, so I asked uh, my wife, who was uh, a lot very involved in the record, and uh, I sent it to Bob Ludwig to get mastered, and he really, really got excited about it. And uh, so that that encouraged me to keep going. And after that, I just was doing just one song at a time. I did Ball and Chain. And after that, I did It's Too Late. And I just kept going from there. And then people got excited. The more people heard it, the more they said, well, you've got something here. And um, uh, but don't forget, this album was something that, that I came up with. Yeah, it wasn't as if some record company executives came to me and said, uh, well, we've got a fantastic idea for your 35th anniversary, and uh, we want you to redo everything from scratch. This album was my idea, was my concept. I paid for everything. I mean, everything is completely on my dime. I paid for the recording. I paid for the musicians. I paid for the studio. I paid for the mastering. I, you know, everything is is like completely 
uh, it's my incentive, it's my money, and, you know, um, it, it was a completely something that, that was made to satisfy me, and also, if it's, if it's, if it's good enough for me, and I figure it's good enough for other people, because I have an extremely high standard, so, uh, 2.0 is a, it's a labor of love, and it also got me really, really excited about music again, because I had stopped being excited about it, and uh, I got into playing guitar, and the record is really a, a guitar album, it's a rock record, it's not a, you know, apart from the two ballads, and even the album, the ballads have like tons of guitar in them, so uh, it's a rock album, so... That's the reason for 2.0. What was it about the music industry that had made you lose sort of your appetite for it? Because you, you have been on a, a, a noticeable break. What was it about how the, the, the industry works where you went, okay, I need to step out of the spotlight. This isn't for me. Uh, it started in 1985, uh, right after I did my Twitch album. When I did my first album, my demos became my album. So basically I had uh, complete control over everything. And then when I went to mix in New York with, with at the power station, I still was uh, in charge of the mix. I mixed with somebody else, and it says uh, in the pit, which means that we were fighting a lot. On the second album, since the first record did well, I was able to be like extremely creative and came up with a um, subject. And to do an album like that, um, which is pretty much off the wall, when everything was going really commercial, I went completely like a concept album that you have to be in control. When Subject didn't do as well as the first album, the record company got really involved and said, well, we want you to write with other people. We want you to do other people's songs. And that's what Twitch turned into. Uh, there's like, apart from Rumors of You, which is like, my only song that I wrote by myself, everything else is co-written, and there's even two songs that I had nothing to do with whatsoever, except maybe arrange. So after that, and you know, I would I would go like you know take a weekend off, and during the weekend, the guys from the record company would uh, would go in there and you know take Jim Steinman's background vocalist. Uh, and uh, they'd record vocals, and I'd come in there Monday morning, and I was like, "Going, well, what the hell is this? Is this my album or not?" And eventually, it wasn't. It wasn't an album over record. I mean, I'm I'm creative enough that I don't need to do other people's material. So after that, I just moved to Montreal, uh, got myself a small apartment, and when I made the move, I mean, I didn't make it when I was at the top of my career. I made it when I was probably at the lowest point. And so I, when I moved, I was broke. I didn't have any money. I just like just said, "Well." I'd rather keep my artistic integrity rather than, like, you know, prostitute myself and do records I don't like. So I went to Montreal and started doing jingles and started producing a 13-year-old artist called uh, Celine Dion and uh, kept going from there till, um, till probably, and I, <clears throat> I kept a low profile till in 1989, uh, the record company finally decided that I wasn't going to record from it for them anymore. And they finally gave me a release. So um, in 1989, I started to do demos. Well, I've been doing demos like the whole time, I think from 87 to 89 to 90. And that turned into the Blood Record. And um, the Blood Record came out about in a really funny way. Uh, I've been friends with John Bon Jovi since 1982. 
when I was doing my first album. And uh, in 1987, uh, we had sort of a spat, and um, it was like there was like almost no contact for a while. And um, it was more like, you know, I had crossed the line that I shouldn't have. So when I, I just wanted to say I'm sorry, and I wanted to, you know, to contact him again. So what I did is I wrote a song called Hey Johnny. And uh, I sent it to him. And uh, the, the chorus went, Hey Johnny, you used to be my friend. Hey Johnny, I was brothers till the end, but somewhere we got lost, and now I miss you, my friend. And that was the song. Uh, eventually that song went on Blood on the Bricks and it became Hey Ronnie. But when he got that song, he called me up and he said, yeah, everything's fine, uh, you know, whatever. He said, that song is great. Do you have any more songs? And I had written a bunch of songs, so I sent him, like, you know, uh, all these songs. And and then, since my demo sounds like records, when it came time for him to do the Young Guns 2 soundtrack, he called me to, uh, you know, on a Friday morning, he called me there and he, to New Jersey, and I went there, and he uh, we he played me a song called A uh, Place of Glory, and we recorded it to a cassette deck recorder, and... Um, I went home that night and did the demo, and you know he sang it Monday morning, and uh, then he got the permission to do Young Guns to the album. But that's how the Blood on the Bricks came about uh, by writing a song, apologizing, and then you know it, it, it did show up on the record. It's called uh, Hey Ronnie, so right. and all my demos showed up on there. And uh, then we I went to his house in Jersey, and we wrote more songs. Blood on the Bricks, the song itself was written there, and. Uh, the album was made with like a great, great bunch of musicians that we had used on Young Guns too. You know, Kenny Aronoff on drums, Randy Jackson on bass. Uh, uh, just a was just a bunch of great musicians. Yeah, a bunch of great musicians. So let, let me let me just go back to the front of that. There, we were, we were talking about Twitch and. As I mentioned the other day, uh, a lot of KISS fans listened to me, so I just quickly mentioned that Anton Fig and Alan Schwartzberg, who ghosted on KISS albums, played on that. But but why do you think, after you've had a number eight record, fantasy all over the place, why did you think the record company didn't trust you to come up with a new album of great material? Why would they start getting into co-produce or co-writers and 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 just writers and throw material yeah material at you and why not just say yeah we know this guy can write let, just let him be it'll be great i have no clue you know what i mean they're really into control even on the first album i mean uh the record company guy came in and uh you know put in a hand clap in hot love and then asked for like uh uh some percentage on the album which of course we had to give him and to this day, he still makes money off that first album. He makes four times what I make in royalties because if he had one hand clap. So it just goes to show you at that point what uh, it was more like them greasing their pockets. I think that uh, it wasn't a matter of uh, it was just like the first album was really, really successful. The second album was very experimental. And a lot of people are catching on to that record now. But, you know, uh they only see numbers. They don't see music. They don't care about music, which is why with 2.0, I didn't care about the record, about a record company. I didn't even go to a record company. They don't get it, as far as I'm concerned. They're not into music. They're business. I'm not a businessman. I'm I, I'm a musician, 
And yeah, that, so that's 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 why that's that's why you know Switch came about. They just wanted to grease their pockets more and get involved. And I'm pretty sure they had a a cut in all these songs that they made me do. And uh, no, to me, that disgusted me. I, you know, I just I'm a musician. I'm an I'm yeah. an artist and. My so, my primary concern is the fans. So. Does this reignite your desire to make more music? Now that you've gone back and you've done these 2.0 versions of Fantasy and Heart to Heart and It's Too Late, do you say, okay, I'm back, I've reestablished myself, and 2019, 2020, we see a new album of all new material, and you get out there on the road, and you start touring, and you start getting an opening slot, and you, or is it like, no, okay, we've done this, I'm satisfied. I can go back to being Aldo, the producer. Where does this sort of, you know, where does this path lead now that you've opened the door? Well, Aldo, the producer, stopped producing other people and writing for other people in 2008. And I haven't done that since 2008. And um, that was done for specific reasons. Um, But uh, there's definitely going to be a tour in 2019 to back this up. Like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, like I, I promised myself, if I had to go door to door to sell this album. I would, and uh, if it means playing, you know, city for city, which I will, and getting this, the, the the word out there that I have a new record. I mean, that's definitely what I'm going to do. And since the the flame was reignited one more time, it just hasn't stopped. the The flow of music, of new music in me, uh, hasn't stopped whatsoever. I mean, I I can't drive in my car without like getting a new idea and whatever and uh you know getting a new arrangement and getting something and then i have to go home and like toil over a hot console or a hot keyboard to get the ideas that are coming out of my head because there's so many of them i think that 2.0 is just uh, the tip of the iceberg as far as i'm concerned yeah, and that's great. And and as you're driving around, feel feel free to drive over to my house and drop off a 2.0 because we we only live <laughs> we only live about 10 minutes from each other. Um, real quick, I I have gone down in the last six months this incredible foreigner rabbit hole where I just have been listening to everything they do. You do have a song here, "I'm a Survivor," that was written for Lou Graham of Foreigner. Talk to me a little bit about that song and. And how did you get to write it for Lou Graham? Was it for a solo project? Was it for a foreigner project? Is it a song that's like five years old, ten years old, uh, way back from the vaults? Um, talk to me about this new track that is on 2.0. Well, the the new track is actually uh, doesn't resemble in the least the uh, the Lou Graham version. I got commissioned in 2009 to do a track for Lou Graham. Nobody knew what nobody did. Nobody said. It had no parameters. It didn't say it has to be a ballad. It didn't have to be it has to be a rocker. Um, you know, it was just like a sort of soul album. He had just gotten new management, so they were just like, uh, you know, scoping things out. And so I had written this song, and I don't think it was even called "I'm a Survivor" at that point. And uh, I did it. I presented it to them, but back then it was just drum machine. There was no extended guitar solos. There was no drum breaks. You know, I made an Aldo Nova song, and the lyrics were you know, generic, and uh, and so uh, they refused. They didn't do the song, and uh, it sat on a hard drive till 2012, and I had even forgotten about it. So my uh, wife was doing a TV show called Flute for Squat, 
and it was about, uh, you know, weightlifting in a kitchen. And uh, I said, well, I've got a great song. So I played it for her. She goes, you know, this is a smash. And I played it for somebody else. It was it's a smash. And then when it came time to do my album, I said, I have the perfect song to add as a bonus track. And uh, I changed the title to I'm a Survivor. And I'm a Survivor, if you listen to the lyrics, it's very autobiographical. It means like... You know, after all I've been through and, you know, over the years and, you know, I haven't had like the the easiest life. But then again, my life hasn't, hasn't really been harder than anybody else's. Uh, uh, you know, the fact that I'm still here after being sometimes like really so low in the gutter that when I looked up, I would look up at a snake's ass. I mean, you know. It's a miracle that I'm actually here. So I'm, you know, I'm really a survivor. And, you you uh, really are. Well, let me let me get to that because, you know, for for Americans and maybe European listeners, you were sort of off the charts and and disappeared and so on. But for Canadians and especially Quebecers like myself, uh, you did mention working with a 13 year old named Celine Dion before, and you did go into the French market. Uh, you know. Anybody who lived in Montreal and watched Musique Plus obviously saw the video for Demoki Sun, where you're, you know, dancing around with Celine. And uh, talk to me a little bit about that, because you didn't just sort of do a couple of albums and then just poof. You sort of retreated to here, and you had a very successful career writing and performing and being part of Celine's initial sort of launch into superstardom. Oh, yeah. I mean... Uh, the whole Celine thing started when uh, she was 13, and, and I, uh, they asked me, uh, Sony Canada asked me to produce a young artist who was uh, a French francophone, and um, I uh, listened to her, and like I said, uh, my, bar- my barometer for working with people is that they have to be talented, and uh, they have to believe in themselves first and foremost, but she had on top of that her, her manager, Bernard Jadot, who who believed in her, like, you know, he sold this house to, to to manage her for her career. The record company believed in her, and I believed in her. So I wrote her three songs and produced uh, the album. And uh, the, the relationship started there. And just like my relationships with, uh, with uh, Bon Jovi or all the other bands that I've worked with, they are more personal relationships that develop into, you know, my, my uh, relationship with... Uh, with uh, with Celine and her husband uh, went all the way till 2007, till the album Taking Chances, uh, where I wrote five songs. And I wrote one of her biggest songs that she came back with in 2001 called The New Day Has Come, which was number one in 26 countries for six months in a row. So uh, I've, I've had a, like a serious involvement in her career for a long time. Yeah, and it's it's obviously been uh, very fruitful for both of you. Now, uh, on the Blood on Bricks album, you you did a song called Someday, which gets a co-write from Bon Jovi, but also Rick Hughes. Rick Hughes being in uh, the Montreal band called Sword. And of course, a lot of my listeners are great metal fans and Metalized came out in 86. All the Megadeth guys loved it. All the Metallica guys loved it. But you went ahead and worked with him on an album called Saints and Sinners. Um, talk to me about our, our, our mutual friend here, Rick Hughes, and, and what it's like working with him, and, and just a little bit about that Saint and Sinners album, because we all know Metalize, we all know Sword, we all know Blood on the Bricks, but this Saint and Sinners album, absolutely fantastic. The work that you did with him is brilliant. 
Uh, it was me, him, and a brilliant guitar player called Stéphane Zafour, who's also from the, our hometown in Montreal here. I mean, he's just phenomenal. And me, uh, him, and Rick, we we got together in my apartment on Avenue uh, Spark, and and we wrote these songs together. And a lot of them, uh, well, most of them made it to the album because you know, if it, if the songs weren't good, we just scrapped them right right then. And there's some great material. Uh, on the album, I mean, Rick sang his butt off. Uh, uh, that is some of the best vocals, and the guitar playing is phenomenal. The production was really like uh, up there. I think it's one of some of my best work, and I mixed it and it sounded huge. And you know, there's some great stuff. Look, it's like eight, nine minute songs, like Frankenstein. There's a Walk That Walk, a Shake. Uh, it, it was sort of like a heavy metal Van Halen. It had that Van Halen strut, and uh, you know, it, it, it had basically everything. And of course, that got it got pushed back, pushed aside because of grunge came along. You know, just like Blood on the Bricks got got uh, pushed aside because of grunge. Uh, uh, not that grunge is a bad thing. You know, I, I liked a lot, a lot of it. But um, now that you mentioned Rick, Rick was the uh, the the main seed behind the song Sunday on Blood on the Bricks. He came to me one day and he said, well, I've got an idea for a song. And he started playing me uh, the title and uh, he started playing me like the, the chords. And I said, well, that's a fantastic song, but it's too light for for the record that we're doing, Chase and Thinners. So, um, so I decided to do the song and I did a demo of it. And that actually was the song that convinced Sean Bon Jovi that I was ready to do another album. And I gave them a song that I wrote with Rachel Bowen and Ann John, uh, Rachel Bowen from um, Skid Row, yep. called Kiss the Bastards. And, you know, that's 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 on the, the Saints and Sinners album. And I uh, took something, uh, we sort of like made a, a mutual trade. But uh, yeah, that record's phenomenal. People should discover that album. It's like... From one end to the other, it's just a great album. Great playing, great singing, great songs. I mean, you know, great sound. And yeah, it's it's a great album. And, and and Sword is back. They did a show in Montreal not too long ago, and they've got a new album in 2019. A an, an Nova Sword co-bill in in Montreal, or even take it around, off on the road, would be fantastic. I think it'd be an an, an incredible night. <laughs> um. I do. I do want to ask you if we can just just about that first, first, first Bon Jovi record. Is that is that something I can ask you about? Oh yeah, yeah. You can ask me about that. Yeah. Okay. So so let me ask you about that because I'm a huge, huge fan. I, I have bought everything they've ever done, every demo ever. I mean, I have I think like 200 Bon Jovi CDs. I've tracked down everything. Um, what exactly was your connection to that first one rumors have it that you've played on all of it none of it some of it a little bit here a little bit there and and how does the guy who just had a number eight album fantasy one of the greatest songs ever written how does a rookie unknown john bon jovi or john bon jovi i guess at that point how does he bump into a major artist and get him to play on his essentially debut album, even demos at the point, at that point? Well, um, the connection was this, this cousin, his older cousin, Tony Bon Jovi, who built and designed and ran the power station, which, you know, 
which has now become the Avatar, which is still the most in-demand recording studio in the world. And back then, Tony was mixing my first album in 19, end of 1981. And John used to, I mean, you know, rumor has it that he was the janitor or was the column custodian. I wouldn't know really what he was doing, but I knew he sang around the coffee machine a lot. And I'm a coffee addict, so I'd be out there quite a bit. And we started talking, and, you know, my album was being mixed in the, in the Studio A, which was right next to the coffee machine, and I invited him in, and I played him fantasy, and I played him heart-to-heart, and all this bombastic uh, sound would come out of the speakers, and he was, like, floored. And um, the connection is when they wanted to do a demo to Runaway, uh, his cousin again called me and put together a, a, a band called the All-Star Band, as he called that now. And it had me on guitar. It had Tim Pierce from the Rick Springfield Band on guitar, who plays the solo and not me. Uh, Roy Bitten from the E Street Band on uh, keyboards, uh, on piano, I mean. There was um, a synthesizer player, of which I don't remember the name. Uh, Ewing McDonald, who plays with Bon Jovi now, yep. uh, plays, plays bass, and there was a drummer called Frankie LaRocca. Um, and that's the rhythm section and the band, that's the actual band that recorded Runaway. And that went on to be played on, on a New York station and it just caught on. Um, I sing background vocalists, me and a background vocalist called Duckett Saros. And John, we do all the background vocals on the whole album. I uh, play keyboards on a lot of the tracks on the album and uh, do programming. And so I'm literally all over that first album. So that's how the connections came through. It came through with uh, with his cousin and developing a friendship that we had. You know, when they asked me to, to play on John's demo, I mean, it was uh, it was my pleasure to do so. So yeah, so it's, so it's almost an Alda Nova album that that John sings on. <laughs> Just joking aside, and and no, I would I wouldn't say that at all. I mean, you know, it's like I know I wouldn't say that. You know, it's like, I don't consider having background vocals and a couple of keyboards and a rhythm guitar. To be part of the record, no, it's it's all John, you know. I mean, of course, of they're his course. songs. I mean, you know, he have he's got a strong identity, you know, which you know just just bloomed during you know the, the following years and whatever till uh, you know so slippery went wet. Actually, you know, they exploded. So yeah, and I've I've had a chance to actually meet you at a couple of Bon Jovi shows in Montreal. There was also another drummer on that uh, project called Chuck Bergy. I don't know if you remember Chuck. But, uh, Chuck Bergey was, uh, was a good friend of mine. He plays on my subject album. Yes. He was a drummer in a band called Balance that was also signed to Portrait Records. And Chuck's just a phenomenal drummer. He was a session drummer. And uh, like I said, uh, when I was doing Always Be Mine on my, in the studio, I auditioned three drummers and they couldn't cut the feel. And then when I got Chuck in there, he just really laid it in the pocket, and that was like you know great for me, you know. So yeah, you know, he, he was a uh, Chuck on there, but um, the credits are kind of hard to read on that album because they don't really say who plays what where, and uh, it's a little um, so it's not it's not as if it says you know uh, guitar on uh, Runaway Aldonova and whatever. It just says Aldonova appears courtesy of uh, Portrait Records, and you know so. Yeah, and and the reason I mentioned Chuck is because I'm literally looking at an email that he just sent me, and I forgot I'd throw that name in there. He's a good guy. Gotta love Chuck. What's he uh, up to? What's he up to? 
<laughs> well, let me let me click on this email and see what he's saying. Um, he has, he has, he has, he has a new project and wants to know if we want to do an interview. So I will I will dig into what he says, and if you want, I'll even pass along his information. If you want to reach out, he's a good guy. Uh, you, you can't. I know Chuck. He's phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and just quickly on on the credits, there are there are a lot of albums that you've been on that you've not been credited on. Is that something that sort of eats at you that you don't get the recognition, or is that just look? Listen, that's that's the game, that's the business, that it is what it is. I I really don't care. I mean, you know, for me, fame is not what I'm uh, what I'm after. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't. I'm not into music or make albums or make music for fame. That was not. Uh, my goal. Uh, I, uh, my goal is to have rec- get recognition um, uh, for what I do, for my talent. I mean, you know, when you're famous, you want adulation. Uh, I want to be uh, respected for what I do as a musician. That's a big difference there. So whatever happens, I, mean, I really don't care. Like I said, when I turned 60, I just went, screw all that. You know, I'm just going to start and win. You know, I didn't know that when I was going to start something fresh, it was going to lead me back to record one. And, uh, you, know, the, you know, the dream came back. It was uh, it was just everything sort of fell to place. Like most of my career, just like I'm winging it. You know, everything is being, it was, my whole career, I was just winging it. It was like there was no definite plans for anything. There you go. The, a great, great chat. And uh, the new album is a 2.0. And, uh if you can ever get uh, John uh, Bon Jovi to do an interview with me, I'll just uh, love you forever. <laughs> just, just thought I'd throw that out there. But there you go. Uh, Aldo, a great pleasure to have you back. You know, a great Canadian talent, a great talent, just period. And uh, we can't have you going away for 10, 20, 30 years again. We, we got to have you pumping out stuff in 2019, 2020. And uh, glad to have you back. And, and on the new album, 2.0, Sounds great. Sounds killer. Love the updated versions. And uh, I'm a Survivor. Great new track. Absolutely fantastic. Okay, Mitch. Thank you. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Rock Talk. Just before we head over to our second interview with Frank Hannon, I just wanted to say that I really appreciate you listening to this show. And I, along with Westwood One, would love to learn more about you. If you have a minute to spare we would really appreciate if you could head over to www.podsurvey.com that is www.podsurvey.com to fill out a short survey telling us who you are and what you like to do this information will be used to help us create better content for the show and to find advertisers that you want to hear from again Thanks, and if you have time, head over to www.podsurvey.com. That is www.podsurvey.com to complete the survey and help us learn more about you, our cherished listeners. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And a very big thank you to Aldenova. That was, of course, uh, interview 2.0 talking about album 2.0, and it was a great pleasure to talk to him for that very, very first time. But, uh, Alan, just uh, quickly here, before we get over to Frank Hannon and his new album and, and your stories with the, the band Tesla, I just want to mention George Thorogood. He has launched his third annual Who Do You Love Holiday 
charity social media campaign. And every Monday in November, starting November 12th, so today, November 19th, 26th, all the way up until December 24th, he takes the time to mention these different charities, donate to the different charities, and he puts up uh, videos and other stuff on his Instagram, his Twitter, and his Facebook. And uh, I just want to mention this here. So November 12th, he is dedicating this week to the Veterans Matter a charity, and of course, it is one of the charities that talks about um, helping veterans with their children and being housed and all this and all that. And you can go check that out at veteransmatter.org. That's veteranmatters.org. And I'm mentioning all of this because George is going to come on next week's episode on November 19th. It is not going to be a George Thorogood interview where we're talking about bad to the bone and this and that. It is going to be just a quick chat about these charities and you'll hear from George directly. But uh, on that episode on November 19th, he, and that week it is the TJ Martell foundation, which of course is um, innovative funding, innovative medical research for uh, cures for cancer. And you can check them out at tjmartell.org, tjmartell.org. And we will talk about the, the December charities in December, but he will close out November with the Humane Society of um, the United States. We, of course, have one of those up here in Canada. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, there are humane societies in pretty much every Western country, right? If you go over to England, am I wrong about that? I'm I'm not sure, but I think there is, right? Do you do you know? Yes, of course there okay. are, and uh, you know it, 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 it's just one of those phrases where. If you're in a slightly cynical state of mind, you go humane society. Yeah, we should try that sometime. Um, and but while we're mentioning charities, if I may just quickly add, yes, um, there are a couple that um, are meaningful to me. Uh, one is the Red Cross because they are always there in every disaster, um, like, like first responders are. Um, trying to help people, and the Red Cross can always use uh, a little bit of bunts if you've got some spare. Yep, and I agree. And another one is called Children of the Night that's based in L.A., and, for example, you know the Angel song that's on that ancient old great mm -hmm. white record, Twice Shy? Yep. Um, from the very first copy sold, um, I gave my composing royalties to this particular charity, and the reason I did it is they provide refuge for street kids, and without question, there are other refuges, refuges that are available, but if they have government funding, they collect information from the kids, which means that a lot of kids won't go to them. So this is a no-questions-asked place where you can go if you need to go somewhere, if you need protection, if you need to eat, if you need to get away somewhere, look for children of the night. Yeah, um, they're and, really good people. And I will go further on that one. It was a charity uh, originally set up, or certainly uh, dear to the heart of Ronnie James Dio. He was very much involved in Children's of the Night. When and, he was in, yeah, so yeah. was Wendy. Yeah, and the first first time I ever interviewed Ronnie James Dio years and years ago, uh, they said to me. We want Ronnie wants to talk about Children of the Night. He doesn't want to talk about anything else. No Sabbath, blah, blah. Are you okay with that? And I was like, T 
to interview Ronnie James Dio? Yeah, absolutely. And so I did that, and the article appeared. And Ronnie was very thrilled with the interview and then the uh, appearance. It showed up in Brave Words magazine in print. And I had a chance to talk to him after, and he says, you know, Mitch, that, that was great. You, you respected it. You didn't do the whole one question and then 50 questions of Black Sabbath and, and so on and so forth. He goes, if you're ever in town, I'd like to say hi to you and so on and so forth. And uh, I happened to be going out to San Diego in California, of course, and he was playing at a place called Fourth and B with Armored Saint opening up. And he said to me, you know what? Uh uh, you come down and blah, blah, blah. and so he took care of the tickets. He took care of the, the passes. And I'm just, I'm just mentioning that because he didn't have to do any of this. You know, I just did an I, interview. I and, liked Ronnie. Yeah, I, you know. I, I've got a couple of other stories that we'll save for another time. But I will mention that one of my favorite pictures is a picture of Ronnie with my then 13-year-old son, both grinning at the camera, double fisting beers and vodka. Yeah. Each of them had two glasses, Ronnie and my two young son. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, anyway, so I just, I just wanted to mention that because it, it wasn't about, the, I, I didn't tell that story to, to show off, but it just shows, here's a guy we had never met, he didn't know who I was, I did an interview, and he's done, by the, I mean, this was like 2000, maybe it was 2000, and it was somewhere late, you know, he, by, by that time he had done 10,000, there was no reason to do any of this. And he did it because he was appreciative and he showed that. And so that, I just thought that was that was very kind because you don't always get artists that, that are, you know, sometimes you, you do an interview well, with just, an artist and you just want them to retweet you and that's too difficult for them. And yet right, he... Right, well, just, just think about the fact that he put so much time and energy into Children of the Night. That shows you that yes. he had a good soul and a good heart. Yes, and uh, I have actually a picture of that article uh, that I sometimes will throw up on a Ronnie James Dio birthday or a memory, and I'll, and, I'll, and I'll put that up. But if you go and you find it on Facebook or Twitter, you can actually sort of pinch, pinch and large, and you can read the article. And it was just—it's just nice to see that he was compassionate and 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 passionate about the charity and about those kids because. We all get sometimes these misconceptions that rock stars just drink champagne and sit in a hot tub and they don't care. And that's not the case. A lot of people spend a lot of time, but they do it the way you're supposed to. They donate in silence and quietly just because, yes. you know, and, yeah. and, and listen, we, we, we bag a lot of times on the Kiss people and Gene Simmons and Paul and all those they have donated to charity over and over again. And the, the fact that what makes it great is that they don't fly a flag saying, look at us, we donated 10 bucks of this thing, we're so good. They, right. they do it because it's the right thing to do. Anyway, uh, just real quick, uh, humanesociety.org. We didn't mention that, but of course, Humane Society. So, so George is going to come on. It's not going to be an interview. It'll be very much like this Ronnie James Dio interview of years past, where he's just going to quickly talk about his uh, Who Do You Love uh, month of charities, charity of choice, and all that. And uh, anyway, that we'll have that for you next week on the on the nineteenth. And um, for those listening, I will also have William Shatner uh, on an upcoming episode talking about his Christmas album. But real quick, Frank Hannon, I don't want to 
Ignore Frank, his new album, From One Place to Another, Volume 2. And of course, it, it is suggesting that there was a Volume 1, and there was last year. So head over to wherever you get your music, Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, and pick up Volume 1 as you pick up Volume 2. And uh, he does, what's, what's great on this one, he does Lord of the Thighs with Graham Whitford. Does, does that mean anything to you, Graham Whitford? Well, obviously, son of. Correct. And he does You Can't Always Get What You Want featuring Dwayne Betts. And so he's got these cool little things going on. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fun package, great little package. And Frankie is great. And, you know, uh, Steve Thompson and Michael Barbiero worked on the Tesla stuff. He worked. They, they, they worked. I guess the team worked on the Guns N' Roses stuff. At some point, while while all this Tesla Guns N' Roses crossover producers that were you must because you you have a million stories. Was there one of you and and Frank and 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 Jeff and and the rest of the you know Troy? Is there is there a a Alan Niven Tesla story? Well, you know, as I, as I point out again, I'm probably the only person you know who's old enough to remember those days. But I, you know, the first time I came across. Tesla. They weren't Tesla. They were called City Kid. And they were opening for one of Ron Keel's bands. I don't know if he was calling himself Keel or Steeler at the time. I can't remember. But there was this band called City Kid opening. And the reason I was there um, was that uh, uh, Bruce Lundvall, who was just starting up a, a company called EMI USA, um, asked me if I would go to the show uh, in the capacity of um, a consulting A&R and get back to him as to whether I thought Ron Keel would be a good match for Bruce and his new label. And I, you know, I actually said, well, I know the band very well and I'm not sure that it's what you're looking for. Um, but he said, you know, please go anyway. So I went and there was this kick-ass little band opening with a great vocalist and a couple of really good guitar players in it and I went hello so I told Bruce you know if you're looking for something interesting I would definitely take a good look at this this band and I think they're from Northern California somewhere and give it a go and Bruce said no I you know I was just checking on on this other band for somebody and you know I'll pass on that so uh, I, I made mention of the band to a good friend of mine and um, got a hold of a tape of theirs and uh, uh, I seem to remember getting Jack Russell and Don Dawkins to go up to Tom Zutout's office and leave the tape there because they were going up to town so they left the tape up there and um, funnily enough I find out later that Tom connects to it and Tom took him to Cliff and Peter at Q Prime and the next thing you know, we have a modern-day cowboy band. Yeah, and that, that debut album is spectacular. It's one of the greatest debut albums ever. I mean, that and Appetite, and there's a few others that just spectacular. Talk to me. We, uh, you know, in case I forget to mention, um, we did end up touring with Tesla. We toured uh, Great White with Tesla for a whole summer one time. And I love Frank Hannon. I, I love his playing. I love his attitude. I love who he is. He's, he's a cool guy. 
just quickly talk to me about Tesla in terms of their career, because they never became, or at least certainly not in Canada, but I think it applies to the States and, and other territories. They never became a headlining arena act. They never were the LA Forum band. They never were the Montreal Forum band. They were always, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way, but the second banana. And yet here we are in 2018, going on to 2019, and, you know, they just opened for Sticks, and next year they're going to open for some other band that I can't mention. And they, they've always done this sort of second banana thing, and yet it's been lucrative. The quality of the material has always been great. They have never played to 34 people on a bar in Tuscaloosa or whatever, however you say that, on, on a Tuesday night. Um, do you find that surprising that they've been able to sort of maintain this B-level status, a high B-level status for all these years and just just happy being that band? Well, you've got a great voice and you've got two good guitar players. So, you know, as long as you keep a, a certain standard up, people will, will buy a ticket and go to a show because they know they're going to get a certain standard of, of music throughout the evening. Um, you know, and obviously... You're well aware that I am probably the most opinionated individual in all of rock and roll. Um, if I were to assess the Tesla career, um, I would just say that they were a, a truly good live band and already mentioned the factors about them that I like. I just felt that they never quite hit the mark with their composing, um, that they just didn't have that run of, you know, three or four or five songs that just put them over the top. Um, but they were always there and always a lot of fun and cool to tour with. Yeah, they really are. So, okay, so given the, the, the whole career are and they had never being in headline act, are they a successful band or of are they, they are. okay, right? I mean, they're, they've, even though they never... Uh, you, you, you know, but let, let's get clear on, on one thing. The word success is interesting. It is. Because from my perception, success is quite often the figment of an envious mind. But if you want to be envious of Tesla, be envious of the fact that they went for the rock and roll dream and they achieved the rock and roll dream because they've spent their lives playing music. And for somebody to go through their life doing something that positive, which is basically playing music, I think is wonderful. I mean, they didn't end up being shitbag lawyers in Washington, D.C. with their snouts in, in the trough. You know, these, these are people who go out there with their heart and soul to make you feel better. And a Tesla gig could usually make you feel better. It, it really, it absolutely does. And you're very right about the, the material. When you buy a, a Tesla album and they keep making new albums, you know what you're getting, and it's very satisfying. It is honest. It's a good slice of honest rock and roll. It's not pretentious. Yep. It's not. It's not flavor of the month. A Tesla album in, you know, '89, and a Tesla album in '19. You know what you're getting, and it's just blue collar rock and roll. And and if that's what you like, then Tesla's the band for you. Anyway, I love the band. I've always loved the band. And again, that that Thompson Barbiero team, man, they they took those Tesla songs. I've had a chance to to hear some of the early demos. They took that stuff, 
and they suggested Little Susie and uh, you know from PhD and all that the cover song, and they just took this little engine that could, and they turned them into a monster band. And it's it, it's 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 part band, it's part good management, it's part the right team, and they had yes. the right team. Yes, they did. And so let's get over to uh, Frank. He is going to talk to us about. From One Place to Another, Volume 2, his new album that covers songs by Aerosmith, Black Sabbath, Heart, and many others. And, oh, guess what? We talk about Steve Thompson and Michael Barbiero. And so without further ado, here is Frank Hannon. We are speaking with Tesla's guitarist Frank Hannon. The uh, current album is From One Place to Another, Volume 2. We, of course, last spoke for Volume 1, Frank, and uh, always, always a great pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Mitch. I want to say thanks to you for uh, keeping rock and roll and rock and roll journalism alive and and uh, and supporting music, man. It's uh, an interesting time in music, and uh, for me as an artist, man, I'm always working very hard, continually trying to create new stuff. And so I appreciate you too, bro. Yeah, thank you. And well, in fact, let's. I was going to ask you about the album first, but let me just ask about that. How important is it to have? grassroots support whether it's me whether it's eddie trunk whether it's it's sirius xm but you know you're on twitter all the time you're, you're direct with the fans how is important how important is it to have that grassroots thing because it really isn't much of a machine behind artists anymore well you're absolutely right and you know with the invention of the iphone and the technology has changed uh the music quote-unquote business uh model uh so dramatically uh, but it has created uh, more of a D, do what they call it, DIY, do-it-yourself, grassroots mentality. Um, it, on one hand, it's it's not like the days where there was magazines and stuff to go look at, but at the same time, everyone's got their phone in their hand all the time. So it's just you know, artists are needing to reinvent themselves if they're old guys like us. <laughs> and then you know, the new artists. Um, have no excuse to not be able to make their own albums. I mean, because you can make it, practically make an album on our phone now, nowadays. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, it all comes down to work ethic and how hard you, a, a person wants to work. And there's so many great musicians that I know personally, but uh, they don't put the work and time into it. Um, and uh, it's, people don't realize how much work goes into writing creating, recording a song, coordinating a band, coordinating a simple interview like what we're doing right now. It took time to set up and prepare. and uh, You know, but I'm a workaholic. I love it, man. And uh, that's why uh, I, I spent my time and recorded all these songs because I'm working on my vocals and I'm trying to, trying to grow as a musician. And I ended up recording 20 cover tunes and I've got a bunch more. I'm getting ready to go in the studio next week to record. So that's grassroots, I guess. Uh, that is grassroots. Yeah. And and I'll talk about volume three, but ha- have we lost a little bit of the mystique? Because, I mean, in the old days when Tesla went on tour, Kiss went on tour, Aerosmith went on tour, or even Bob Dylan, he would come to your town, and then for the next 364 days, you had no idea what was going on. You didn't know what the set list was. You didn't know. And now on top of that, with like you on Twitter and stuff, we know all the time. When you do great stuff, we see about it. When the band screws up, we hear about it. Um, have we lost the mystique yeah. of... Yeah. Uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I know where you're going. And, yeah. And I think, to some degree, yes. Um, 
everything is over and old in an instant, you know, like as soon as you see it on YouTube or, or on your cell phone, um, a few days later, you've kind of forgotten about it already. Whereas before we would wait anxiously for the new Van Halen record or the new, you know, uh, the new Ozzy album with Randy Rose. I remember when Diaries of Madman was going to come out, man, my friends and I were so anxious to get it because we had heard about it, but didn't know what it was going to be like. Um, so yeah, you know, and I was tripping on that, uh, yesterday flying home from Jersey. Uh, we flew home on the Tesla tour and I was, we were coming in for a landing and I was looking down at the, the buildings and the cars and how small everything is. And it was amazing to me to think about the old days in the seventies and even the early eighties before we had the internet and how, you know, people were connected. I mean, you know, and how, how did we hear about Aerosmith or, or, Led Zeppelin back then, it was all, you know, waiting for the next magazine to come out in a month. You know, it's definitely turned in everything into instant in, information instantly. And it's over as fast as it uh, comes out. That's the one thing I don't like about this new uh, technology. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, as soon as Tesla goes on, on tour, you go, oh, OK, they're playing those 12 songs. Oh, OK. Uh, well, I know what to expect that night, so uh, I can do this, and I can go to the bathroom there, and I can. And it's like, really? Yeah, are you really going to plan your night like that at a show? Anyway, um, so let's talk about some of these. And you can watch, and you can instantly watch the Tesla show on YouTube that somebody posted on Facebook from the night before, and you can see what's going on and how it sounds. You know, it's that you know never could do that before. I remember, you know, uh, it was you know no video cameras allowed. There was definitely a lot more of a mystery before. Um, but anyway, but speaking of set list, yeah, I'm yeah. really planning to push uh, Tesla to change our set list next year. And, uh, we're going out in February. Uh, Tesla is going to be coming out, uh, with a new album, uh, that was produced by Phil Collin. And, you know, a lot of the material was uh, written with and by him. And he put a shot in the arm for Tesla. And, uh, we got a new album coming out in, in March of next March. year called Shock. Yep. And, I want to change the set list up dramatically for that. I'm hoping to really uh, push the guys to uh, come up with a new set list next year. Well, I, I will be texting you some uh, suggestions in a minute. But uh, before, before I, I do want to talk Tesla. I do want to, of course, talk Shock. I want to talk March. I want to talk all that. But we are here talking about your new album. So, so Volume 2, of course, you just said you had some extra songs you're going to be recording. So there is going to be a Volume 3, right? That's a fair assumption. Well, that was the original plan, okay. uh, was three volumes. I mean, honestly, the original, original plan came from a friend of mine in the industry who said I should just do only EPs, but uh, with four songs on them for each volume. But me being the crazy workaholic that I am, I ended up recording 10 songs per volume, and I have such an eclectic taste of music that goes between Grateful Dead to Black Sabbath to, you know, uh, the Seal and, and Aerosmith. I mean, my, my taste in, in songs is so dramatic that there was no way I could do that small amount of music. Um, now, back to your question, is it going to be a volume three? I'm not sure if I'm going to do that or if I'm going to take both volumes and just put on some special bonus tracks and put them all together as one volume and just call it like the final destination of all of it. You know, from one place to another has arrived to the final right. the arrival full on package. Yeah. The arrival. 
There you go. See? And I'm talking with some friends. Um, you know, uh, David Elkson from Megadeth has been very supportive, him yep. and his partner Tom, uh, yep. with their label. And I'm talking to them uh, about possibly uh, putting that all together after the first of the year and creating one uh, arrival. I like that. You like that, the arrival? Yeah, I like the arrival. That, see, that makes sense because you're going from one place to another, and at some point you have to arrive. Right, you have to you have to get exactly. there. So that's the idea, and I'm talking to them, and I don't. It's not 100 percent guaranteed that it'll be with them, but man, they've really been very encouraging to me as an artist, and so uh, that's a possibility uh, on the horizon. But first off, I want to get in the studio with my band. And uh, speaking of band, I, you know, I really I have some great guys that I play with in a band um, uh, that are on my new video for Hush. Um, I got Billy and, and Nick playing rhythm and bass guitar. I've got uh, Robbie playing percussion, and Kelly Smith is my partner. We, he plays uh, drums and also helps me make videos. We've made a ton of videos together. We did Electric Chair. We did New York City Psycho Cab Ride. A lot of my solo material. And so that is uh, essentially the Frank Hannon band, uh, along with uh, Randy Hansen uh, is my special guest guitar player on Hush, as well as Spanish Castle Magic, which we're going to release here probably around Christmas time. Oh, I can't wait to see that. So l- let me talk about the, the selection of songs, because you mentioned Seal. You, of course, we have Lord of, the Th- Lord of the Thighs, let me say that correctly, which of course is the greatest Aerosmith song ever invented. But do you choose them based on songs you just want to play on guitar? Do you choose them on songs that you know you can sing? Do you choose them just because it's a great song? Like... When you sit down through the thousands and thousands and millions of songs out there, how do you sort of come to, okay, this goes on a Frank Hannon uh, covers album? Well, it's a combination of all those things that you just mentioned. Um, And uh, some of them go back to being my favorite songs as a kid, like uh, the song I Can Help. Uh, When I was 10 years old, I heard that on the radio uh, blaring in my stepdad's garage when he was working on his Harley and I always wanted to help him, you know, and I could hear that song playing, you know, I can help. And I love the lyrics in that song. So it goes back to being a kid for some of these songs. Um, Lord of the Thighs is one of my all time favorite Aerosmith songs. And I happened to run into Graham Whitford on the road and his dad being Brad Whitford, who wrote that song in Aerosmith guitar parts, the puzzle just all fell together for that putting that song together. So it's a combination of, of things and it's trial and error as well. You know, sometimes I'll think I could do a song and then I start trying to sing it or play it and I just, it doesn't feel or sound good. So I mix it, you know, uh, it's a lot of it's trial and error. Um, and, uh, some things just kind of happen by accident and other things happen by, uh, by plan. You know, that's the beautiful thing about music is, uh, when it can be spontaneous and magical, it's, it's the best, art form in the world for me anyway were there any songs that you avoided for for a particular reason like would you get for example like a duran duran song and say well my my fans wouldn't understand if i'm doing this so no i can't do that or man i'd love to retake that tesla song but no tesla's got to be test like i mean did you have songs where you thought wow my, my fan base is not going to deal with this properly and so i'm just going to avoid those did, did that occur to you at all <laughs> that's a great question uh no um uh I, if i did think of it that way i probably would have avoided a lot of things <laughs> right uh, you know like doing steel or or you know doing uh 
doing some of the Jim Dandy to the rescue. I, no, I didn't think about it in the way that Tesla fans would not like it. Um, I haven't actually thought of covering a Tesla song really. Um, Duran Duran. Uh, no, I mean, honestly, I'm actually thinking about doing more eighties music. Um, I'm a huge fan of Aldo Nova. Um, I'm a huge nice. fan of lover boy and, and some eighties music lover boy kicks ass. I mean, I thought about doing a version of working for the weekend. I've also thought about maybe trying to do come sail away by sticks, but doing it on guitar, you know, but like I said, it's trial and error until I really sit down and try them. If it takes a lot of extra hard work to make it feel right, then I just won't do it. But if it, if it feels natural and I can sing it and play it and it feels natural and fun, then I'll, then I'd go for it. And no, I have a completely open mind to, to any song. So if you have any ideas, Mitch, uh, feel free to uh, send to, me an email with any, uh, to suggestions of anything. I, I will say this, that I have avoided doing any Led Zeppelin material. Um, because Led Zeppelin has been covered and copied so much, but, uh, well, At the same listen. Time, I'm kind of heartbroken because I love Led Zeppelin and I think I can pull off a Robert Plant. Uh, so I'm considering Led Zeppelin, but I have a that's the only artist I've avoided is Led Zeppelin. Is Led Zeppelin. And and by the way, you did mention Alda Nova. I did interview him recently, so you have now made my episode decision easy. I'm going to put you two together on the, on the next episode. So that'll make it nice and easy, but um yeah, for for oh, suggest- hell yeah, man! He's got a new song called "I'm a Survivor" that that I can totally relate to, and, and it kicks ass, man. Oh, Aldo is great. So, uh, just a quick suggestion since you you mentioned sticks, I would maybe try "Babe." I could see you doing that, and then also on uh, "Foreigner," I could see you handling a song called "Luann," which has sort of a twang to it, which I thought I think you'd be you'd handle great. But okay. There you go. Those, those are the things. Like that old song by Six. It's called "Young Man." It's a J.Y. Yes. song. Yes, I love that song too. You know, but uh, you know, it, until I give it a shot, I don't know. You know, I mean, I'd also like to do a Frank Marino and Mahogany Rush song, being from Montreal. You know, you know who that is. Yes, of course. We uh, we we tried to get him to come out to the uh, Bell Center or the Place Bell when you were here the last time, but you will like this. And I know the people listening to the interview are going to be like, "Hey." We want an interview. But I sat with Zach Wilde and Frank Marino on a bus in August, and we had a long two-hour chat. And I said, hey, you know what? Frank really wants to meet you. Frank Hannon wants to meet you. And he goes, okay, Mitch, I promise you, the next time Tesla comes to town, I will absolutely go. I promise you. So he said it to me, and he's a man of his word. So the next time you're in town, he's going to come out and see you. Fantastic. Well, you know what? Then that that even motivates me more. I think I might dig into Dragonfly or uh, or The Answer or one of his killer songs. You know, he has a song that I used to cover uh, called um, "Talking About a Feeling," and I, that you know, I think that's the one I'll probably do. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and his finger work is is intense. So, and of course, you probably should cover Def Leppard. They they did take you out on tour a bunch of times, and and Phil is is working or worked with you on Shock. That would be a shock to do. Uh, I don't know, bringing on the Heartbreak or something, just to say, here you go, Phil, take that. Uh, yeah, you know, I would probably dig in. Uh, I'd probably dig into their first album and do like it don't matter or, oh, or yes. Rock Brigade. Yes. Yes. Now you're talking. But all right. So let's let's quickly talk. Uh, get a Tesla update. the uh, The album is coming out in March. It is called Shock. It is uh, produced by by Phil. Um, we've seen a bunch of interviews, including my some that I've done with with different members of Tesla. 
the experience with Phil was really good. What did he particularly bring to the studio? I mean, is it just sort of familiarity that the fact that you've known these guys for so long and there's a comfort level going to the studio? Did he bring in new ideas? Did, did just what was Phil's sort of you know vibe for for Tesla having him as a producer? Well, you know, Phil brought in a, a lot of energy and uh, motivation. Number one. Um, you know, I had said this before. I don't think Tesla was probably going to make another studio album for a very long time. Um, Phil did bring in a lot of song ideas. Um, the majority of the songs on the new record uh, are co-written, if not written mostly, a lot by Phil. Um, you know, we all brought in some ideas. Um, you know, he's a he's a great lyricist, so he you know he really was adamant about writing lyrics and doing stuff like that. Um, you know, and he comes from the Mutt Lang school of producing, which is something that we haven't really experienced before. Someone that really has a detailed, uh, schedule of production and how to put things together, you know? So it's one of those things that's a very different album. Um, you know, there's some stuff on there that Tesla fans will probably love. Or they may not like, I don't know, but he did bring a lot of positive enthusiasm and motivation and, got the record done and really pushed us hard to challenge ourselves in different ways that we've never been challenged before. So, uh, that's pretty much how I can describe the, the, the whole experience. Um, you know, it was aggravating at times and it was great at times. Um, but the, the coolest part about it was, is he showed us that we could do it while we were on the road in hotel rooms and dressing rooms. And that. Uh, the only limits that the members in Tesla set on themselves is in their their own limits in their head. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, so, and and that's the great thing, by the way. We were talking about technology at the beginning, and you know, now yes, the the fans have more uh, immediacy to the band, and yes, your set list is right away. But at the same time, you don't have to book four, five, six, eight, nine months in a studio and do nothing else. You don't have to all come to whatever Sacramento and not have your lives. You don't have to get off. There is that advantage of you just go up to your room 555, plug into your whatever, and off you go. And then next thing you know, you've got a great album. Well, next, well, here's the, yeah. And the truth is, is that the past three, four years, we have been booked solid on the road. And 90% of our life is spent on the road, in a bus, in a hotel, in a dressing room, uh, at a venue, uh, and a lot of that time was spent with Def Leppard. So there was a lot of time there, and um, it was that was when we utilized that time to work with Phil. And Phil did come to Sacramento a few times, but the majority of it was done while we were spending most of our life on the road. And so it taught us that you can make use of that otherwise wasted time, you know. And it's easy to get depressed and tired on the road and and twiddle your thumbs when you're just sitting on a bus but uh when we were out there with phil we didn't do that we we utilized the time to uh to set up the computers and the microphones and uh work on on the songs. yeah now you did say that if it wasn't for phil you didn't see tesla doing an album for a, a good long time 
Is that something that for you as an artist, I know you're doing from one place to another and stuff, but is it still important to get new ideas down because you are at that spot in your career where you can go out with Sticks and Joan Jett and you can go out with Def Leppard and you can go out on your uh, go out on your own and you don't need to write a new song ever and you will have the same crowd, you will have the same show, you will have the same enthusiasm. I mean, or is there still that inner need of yeah, that's really nice, Mitch, but I got to write something new. I got to keep it fresh. Yeah, yeah, that's me personally. That's my take on it. I, I constantly love to record and try new things. I've got a bunch of new songs that uh, um, when we talked about from one place to another, if I was going to do uh, another volume three or the other thing was, is I may just decide to put out another all original album because I do have a lot of original songs and ideas that... Uh, that I, that I personally, but you know, Tesla's a team and you know, there's other members in the band that have different ideas and, and places that they are in their lives, you know? Um, so, uh, you know, it, for me, it's very important to keep writing and produ- producing and I'll be doing this until my last breath, you know? Um, some of the other guys, they, they, they may not have that same feeling or they may, I don't know. You know, a lot of them, you know, have different projects they're doing as well. Um, so, you know, but I can just say that at the point that we were out when we started working on that album with Phil, that, uh, you know, creatively, the team of Tesla has had been at a standstill. And, uh, you know, he was able to, uh, to, to create another album with us. What, what do so, you... Sorry, go ahead. But that's it. I don't know. Okay, uh, so let me ask you... Back in, uh, was it 2000, you had that show at Arco Arena, Tesla was back, we're now 18 years later, um, you've been around since what, 86, 87? What, ha- what has been sort of the, the, the secret to your success? Because when you look back at the MTV era and you look back, you know, the, the names Motley Crue comes to, te- to head and, and, and to your head and, and White Snake and, the, and, and Tesla sort of just sort of slid in between there and just kept going and kept going and you, you know what what has sort of been that thing that has kept you going and kept fans interested well i don't you know i don't really know honestly i'm just kidding I, you know i think it's the songs um i think it's the fact that we were not really a glamorous kind of band that relied a lot on makeup and gimmicks you know we were more of a band that uh that wrote songs that were easy to relate to and kind of just down home and emotional, you know, Jeff Keith uh, had touched on a lot of uh, uh, feelings that people can relate to, you know, and, uh, and we tried to write songs that were encouraging and, and positive of nature, you know, like hang tough and it's the way it is, you know, keep your head up kind of music, you know, and uh, encouraging kind of songs. And I think that might've been a big part of, of why we're still, you know, have the integrity in our audience and the, the, the audience that stuck with us is because of uh, that integrity in our songs. You know, it wasn't real phony or, or plastic, you know. Um, and then the other thing I would say would be that, uh, you know, we were able to get a handle on the alcohol and, the, and drugs and problems that still plague a lot of our, our peers today. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of the bands that are still going or trying to make a go of it that are our age, you know, 
still battle with uh, the alcohol-fueled uh, personality differences, you know, because the, the alcohol will multiply whatever differences you already got, you know. And uh, so the fact that we put a lid on that stuff also has given us more longevity. It really has, and and you're you're one of the bands from that era that really hasn't had a club circuit era. You you or you know or years of you've managed to stay on the summer sheds and and you know the the sticks kind of thing. You've never really done you know thirty five people in in Detroit on a Tuesday night, and and it's just amazing that you that there's somehow the band just stayed focused and stayed at that other level. Um, we were talking about of course phil collin doing this talk, talk to me real quick about the steve thompson and Mar- michael barbiero team they had a hand of course in a couple of your records they've done injustice for all and they've done all kinds of other great bands uh, you know guns and roses appetite for destruction what did they bring to that early sound because when you got there with mechanical resonance you were rookies and yet you got one of the hottest teams to produce or, 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 or to co-produce your, your album. What was that like, and how important were they in developing that earlier sound? Well, that's a great question, and, and I appreciate you, uh, you bringing that up. Um, the early 80s, uh, that decade and that era was the producer's world. I mean, that, everything relied on the producers, and went as far as in the big business record company business of that era. And we were a very young band and we got, uh, noticed by Tom Zutat and Teresa Insanat, uh, when we were opening for Ronnie Montrose and we were building our, our catalog of original music. And, um, uh, those people, uh, Tom and Teresa were trying to get a producer to produce our album and help develop us. And we got turned down by a lot of producers, pretty much every name producer uh, there was at the time. Uh, Mutt Lang, Bruce Fairbairn, uh, Bob Clearmountain, Peter Collins, Max Norman. A lot of them came, actually came to Sacramento and came to our club show at the Oasis when we were headlining the clubs there. And some of them even went as far as to go to our practices and help us chisel away at, at some of the songs on mechanical resonance actually have some of the arrangements that Max Norman did and, and some of the input from those producers who ultimately passed on us. And that was about a two year period of very difficult times. We were making any money and we kept getting rejected by producers. Now we weren't rejected by the label. Thank God Tom believed in us and, uh, kept encouraging me personally as a guitar player to make demos. And so I would make demos of modern day cowboy and changes and all those songs on my four track. And, you know, I was, keep in mind, I was 17 years old at this time, 18 years old, uh, living at my grandma's house in the garage and, uh, making demo tapes for the band. Uh, cause I was really interested in recording and learning how to do that. Thanks to Ronnie Montrose and, and, uh, Tommy McClinton, uh, was a big influence on that. Him and his brother used to make demos for us as well. So by the time we had got to a point to where uh, we were introduced to Steve Thompson and Michael Barbiero, they hadn't really produced an album yet. They had been mixing engineers. They mixed some, uh, some stuff before us. I think they mixed a John Lennon song. They did a Phantom Rocker and Slick song, maybe a David Bowie song as a remix for, for like 
some dance halls or something, but we were the first band that they actually produced, like came in and took our demos and took them to the next level and took us into the studio, took us under their wing and worked with us. And they were very responsible for keeping us real organic. Michael Barbiero is a very organic style engineer. Uh, you know, we didn't do a whole lot of overdubs. Uh, we kept it really real. Steve Thompson was great at being like a, uh, a rally of the team kind of boosting you up and kicking you in the ass like, hey, let's go, guys. Let's go, team. Come on. And encouraging us. The two of them had a great chemistry with us. And like I said, I was really young, kind of insecure, kind of needed the confidence. And uh, they gave us that. Took us into Bearsville Studio, which was this great freaking studio in upstate New York. Had a great living arrangement out in the country. And we worked in the barn and and we worked really hard developing those songs again, even beyond the demos that I made. And uh, but they were hungry too. They weren't really established as producers yet. They didn't do the Guns and Roses and stuff until after oh, you're right. we did the Tesla album. You're right. You're and right. so they were really hungry to produce a great record. And we all went into it with the idea we want to make the greatest rock record we can. And that's what we came out with with Mechanical Resonance. And uh, keeping it real and organic and down to earth, but also making it very uh, energetic. And uh, after that, they were able to get the Guns N' Roses gig and, and a couple other great albums that they produced since, you know, but uh, I believe that yeah. we were probably one of the very first albums they produced. Yeah, you're right, because this, this was 86, and, and of course the album came out in December, so we're now looking at 32 years coming up. Holy mackerel, time flies, but... I have to say, they, they, whatever they did and whatever the band did, of course the band played on it, so credit goes to both. But, uh, And I think I've told you this story before. You were coming to Montreal on the Hysteria tour with Def Leppard, and I saw Tesla opening up, and I went, well, who the hell are they? And I went down to the record store, and I found the album, and I said, well, listen. You know, a cassette was like six ninety nine or something. I said, well, listen, I'll buy it, and if, it's, if it sucks, you know, six bucks, whatever. And it was so perfect. It was so fantastic. Um, you know, to be able to know those songs going into that Def Leppard show to, and be able to sing songs from both bands, it it, it is the greatest, to me, um, debut record. Because there's just, there's just nothing, there's no faults on it. There's, there's just no faults. Song 1 to 12 is all, it's all, it's all good. You know, there's no B-side. Well, thank you very Thank you very much, man. And you know what? I, I, I have to agree with you to some degree. I'm not like going to toot our horn or anything, but you should. for that era, for that era, putting 12 songs on a record was unheard of at that time. Most fans were only putting out eight songs and they, you know, we, we were really adamant about putting all of those songs on the record. And, uh, we, you know, Steve Thompson and Michael Barbero were very supportive and, it trips me out again. Uh, you know, I was 17, 18, uh, 19 when we went in the studio uh, with them uh, to write those songs and put that all together. It trips me out. You know, I, I, when I look back on it now, it's kind of a trip that we did that. And uh, especially for the age group that we were, you know, me personally, I was the youngest guy in the band at that time. And uh, it's a trip to look back on it. Yeah, 30, 32 years later. So here's the one thing that, that fans always ask me 
about Tesla and because you have this, you have the great radio controversy and all these great albums. And there's been a bunch of B-sides and on, you know, the old days, cassette singles and CD singles. There were songs lying around. You have never done a deluxe edition of anything. You've never done a sort of a compilation of ever. Um, Do we get a mechanical? There's a couple. There's a a Times Making Changes. Right, right, right. I know what I... Though, but I'm thinking more box set where you sort of, you know, but do you, do you see yourself doing mechanical resins, deluxe edition and, and finding some of those early demos you were working on before Steve and Michael got to it? Do, do you, you know, do you, do you have live shows from 87 lying around that you could, you know, is that something that the band uh, you know, can I do? There is some stuff lying around and I believe that Brian Wheat has, has archived some of it. We did start a, a feeble attempt about, 10 years ago to try to put something together. Uh, but there was some legal issues about who owned it and that kind of mumbo jumbo. But I think we might have some of that stuff sorted out. And there is some attempts to, to, uh, to do, uh, some, some, uh, deluxe edition stuff, but, uh, I don't know a hundred percent. Um, you know, myself, I'm always more forward thinking, but I gotcha. know Brian gotcha. and, uh, some people were talking about, uh, that, uh, that concept, yeah. I, I hope so. And I think if I if I understood correctly, Shock is going to come out through Universal, which I guess Geffen ended up being Universal. So I guess everything's sort of back under the same tent, which I guess would make it easier for this stuff to happen moving forward. There you go. See, so yeah, you, you, uh, you're right about that. I think that is why now that there is potential talk about it. Um, some of those early demos I'm very proud of. Some of them are a little bit uh, cheesy and funny, uh, you know, so uh, that'll be an interesting project. There you go. Uh, Frank, always a pleasure. And, and of course, looking forward to seeing my next Tesla show. I have seen many, but never enough. And so there you go. And uh, thank you, of course. Hey, thanks, man. And thanks for uh, for uh, also supporting my, my solo endeavors. You know, it's, it's uh, been always very difficult for a guitarist who's been part of a band. If you look historically, Keith Richards or Neil Sean or Joe Perry, guys that, that have been in a, in a great band but also want to do their own thing, um, usually don't get very much support. So I'm no different. You know, it, 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 there's, a, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, obstacles and hurdles to jump over, but I continue to do it, and I appreciate you uh, supporting it. And the, uh, the the new video for Hush is out now, and uh, it's on my website, frankhannon.com, and I've got some merch that goes along with it, and have got more stuff coming, more music and stuff coming. So yeah. really appreciate the support. Can't wait. And uh, I know you've done a few solo, sh- solo shows over the years, or, or in fact uh, this year. Do you, more on the road, or, or is Tesla really going to sort of take up all your free time? Uh, I have some dates planned in December, uh, December 14th and 15th. I'm going to be in the Chicago and Milwaukee, uh, Wisconsin area. I'm going to be up in Appleton, Wisconsin with uh, Great White and Jackal and Stephen Adler uh, this year for a Christmas party. I'm doing a New Year's, New Year's Eve show uh, with Y&T and the Frank Hannon Band. Um, we're doing that uh, this New Year's Eve. Um, and then uh, Tesla's going to be out in February, and I'm not sure what's happening for the rest of the year yet. But uh, if Tesla's not working, I'll still be doing my Frank Hannon band stuff. No, oh, that's great. Great to hear. Uh, there, there you go. And again, uh, pleasure as always, and uh, let's do another one of these soon. 
Sounds good, man. And uh, yeah, you know, the video is out now. That's my main thing. I want people to know that Hush video with Randy Hansen is my latest uh, effort. And I'm really excited to share Randy Hansen with the world. He's a Jimi Hendrix tribute artist, and uh, he's a phenomenal player. And I, I'm really honored to have him, as well as Graham Whitford and Paul Jackson and uh, uh, from Blackberry Smoke, um, you know, the, the Nelson Twins. I've got a lot of great special guests on my album, uh, my two solo albums that I just released, and I'm really excited to have them as well. So I want to send a shout-out to them. Um, Tommy Triali from Johnny Winter's band plays drums, and his gal Allie plays the sax. You know, uh, Jared James Nichols is a killer guitar player that's out now. you got to check him out, dude. Have you heard of Jared James Nichols? No, I haven't, but I will definitely go check him out. What what is his sort of claim to fame? What what is geez, where where did you find him? Well, I first discovered him at Sturgis playing out in the parking lot, man, and nice. rocking and rolling. He's a solo guitarist. Um, he's he's out. He plays shows. He's open for Leonard Skinner. He's a, he's a great guitarist, and he plays on my album. He does uh, Sweetly, Sweetly, yeah, uh, Black Sabbath song. We do a remake of that, and. Uh, He's a smoking guitar player, Jared James Nichols. Um, oh, Roger Fisher from Heart is on the album. Um, you know, so I'm really, uh, really honored to have some of my uh, my friends, guitar player legends, playing on the album. Great stuff, and uh, I will make sure to to let everyone know. And of course, Hush is out now. Great song, great song, great video, and uh, thank you, Frank. Thanks, Mitch. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.